to episode six of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Dave Cameron. Dave is the managing editor at Fangraphs.com and co-founder of the Mariners blog, USS Mariner. You can give Dave a follow on Twitter at DCameronFG. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, no problem. Uh, happy to be part of it. Well, Dave, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I think I've always been a little bit of a numbers guy. Uh, I remember when I was like five or six, my parents owned their own small business, and since they couldn't afford a babysitter, they would just take me to work with them. And about, uh, I don't know, two blocks from their work, I was a 7-Eleven, and so I would, you know, earn a dollar sleeping the floors or something and go down and buy a pack of baseball cards because there was nothing else to do since they trapped me at their work all day. And uh, reading the backs of the baseball cards kind of, uh, you know, became this, uh, interesting world of numbers that I didn't totally understand, but it, it was really intriguing. And we didn't have a television when I was a kid, so I basically consumed baseball through the radio and through um, the backs of baseball cards and learned everything I could about the players and kind of fell in love with the idea of baseball, even though I didn't get to see it all that often. I grew up with baseball cards, too. The numbers on the back of the cards, very traditional counting numbers. When did you take the turn into sabermetrics? Uh, so I, I guess in like the mid nineties or so, we got an internet connection. Uh, we had AOL and Netcom and, you know, all the, the wonderful world of dial up, uh, with, you know, 200 hours free on each CD or whatever it was. Um, and I started reading a column by Rob Nyer, which at that point was called, uh, chin music, I think, uh, on the old ESPN net sports zone. And I didn't really believe anything he said, but he, he was an interesting writer and he challenged some of the things that I thought about baseball, but. Mostly I just read it because there wasn't uh, that many people writing about baseball on the Internet. Uh, so I didn't really believe in a lot of stuff that Rob wrote, but it was kind of my first exposure to those ideas. And then I was part of a, a Mariner Usenet news group, um, and there were some kind of original statistician uh, favorite metric guys posting in that news group occasionally, and we would argue about you know, Ken Griffey Jr.'s defensive value, uh, you know, whether Vince Coleman was a good acquisition in 1995 because it was on base percentage. And this was kind of where the, um, the foundations of these ideas started founding. And I kind of pushed back against them. But as I, I got a little older, I started realizing that they might have some decent points and did a little more research and uh, got more interested in, in learning what actually makes a baseball team win. I want to ask you about the relationship between traditional BBWAA members and the sabermetric community. It can be obnoxious at times. I think we can look at the Trout-Cabrera MVP race debate as an example of that coming from both sides a little bit. How do you think some of the issues between how traditional writers cover baseball and how um, sabermetric people cover baseball, how do you think some of those can get resolved and they can maybe come together a little bit? Well, I think probably the main way that uh, we could reduce the noise on both sides was to just stop stereotyping. So, I mean, I think like the most harm that's done is when either a sabermetric writer or a traditional writer starts railing against the other sides and starts pulling out the canards of, you know, they live in their brother's basement. Oh, they're, uh, you know, they're old farts who don't know how to use a computer and don't check their email. I mean, you know, I think both sides have uh, ad hominem attacks that they've perfected against the other side. And they, they don't do really any good. Like, they're not true. Uh, for the most part, most of the traditional writers, I think, have come around to things like on base percentage. And, uh, you know, there's been some significant inroads. You see, you know, OPS used in the column all the time without, you know, even explaining what it is anymore. Uh, the triple flash line, I think, is, you know, something that's become a little bit ubiquitous where people are now quoting batting average on base and slugging instead of batting average home runs and RBIs. I mean, obviously, people still use home runs and RBIs, but it's not weird to see on base percentage and slugging percentage in a newspaper anymore. So, 
I think if the if the sabermetric crowd can maybe give a little more credit to the traditional crowd and, and acknowledge how far they've come uh, to the point where Mike Trout is even considered an MVP candidate, uh, you know, I think that's that's progress. And if, if we can acknowledge that, and you know, maybe on the uh, this other side they could reciprocate and uh, realize that. You know, some of us are making careers out of this. We're not all complete nerds with no social interaction skills. And, uh, you know, there might be some value to the things we're saying. How do you think the sabermetric community can do a better job presenting its information, regardless of the, the BBWAA and traditional baseball writers? How do you think, as a whole, the community can do a better job presenting its information, if at all? I think, to me, the key is concepts and not numbers. And I think this is one of the things that I try and do on Fangraphs and try and help our writers understand. We don't necessarily want to just... Uh, write about a guy's war or a guy, about a guy's UVR, the numbers aren't really that important. It's the uh, idea behind the numbers that are is really the, the true point that we're trying to get across. So, you know, I, I don't really care if Mike Trout's war is 10.3 or 9.2. It's irrelevant. The idea is that Mike Trout is a, a fantastic all-around player. And, you know, war obviously tells us that, but we can tell that story without war and we can tell that story effectively. So to me, I think the a good sabermetric writer uh, will use the numbers to inform himself and can kind of learn what the truth is, but then he'll tell a story without using those numbers as a crutch. And I think when we get to the point where we're spouting off, um, you know, UVR or FIP or, you know, ERA plus or whatever it is, uh, these are the kinds of numbers that are going to intimidate people and turn them off and they're just going to stop listening to us. But if we can, you know, kind of interpret those on our own, learn the language for ourselves and then turn it into English so that other people can understand our point is that Mike Trout is a, a really good hitter who also steals a lot of bases and plays good defense. You know, that makes the point just as well or better as saying he led the league in war. Yeah, Jonah Carey said a similar thing. Jonah Carey said that his job is basically defined as translating numbers into English. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with Jonah, and Jonah is better at it than most of us. I want to ask about uh, some of the numbers on fan graphs. One of the prominent numbers you guys display is WOBA, weighted on base average. You made some changes to that number recently. Uh, tell me what the changes were and why they were made. Yeah, so this is something that, you know, with David Appleman, who owns fan graphs, and I have been talking about for a few years. I've been kind of pushing in this direction. Originally, stolen bases and caught stealing were included in WOBA because we didn't have any kind of base running metric on the site. And, we, you know, base running is important. Steals are, you know, a way that certain players can add a lot of value or lose a lot of value if they're really bad at it. Um, and we wanted to incorporate that into their offensive value because we didn't have a base running statistic. Woba made the most sense of where to put it. So we had stolen base and caught stealing. Uh, we included the, their weights, so the linear weight values of those uh, bases taken and outs made in the Woba calculation in order to give credit to people who, for their base stealing, once we got, uh, you know, what we call ultimate base running, um, which covers, you know, going first to third, second to home, tagging from third on a sack fly, kind of the, the non-stolen base parts of base running, at that point I think it probably made more sense to have stolen bases and caught stealing in that category, which already measures base running, so we would have hitting and base running separate. And I think that came up a little bit in the Trout-Cabrera comparison this year, where people would look at, at Trout's Woba and say, I don't understand why it's so close to Cabrera's when Cabrera outslugged him by, you know, 50, 100 points. And the answer was always, well, you know, Trout had 45 stolen bases and only got caught three or four times. So that increases his Woba. But, you know, I think a lot of people look at Woba as kind of an OPS replacement because the weights are better. Uh, it's a slightly more accurate overall uh, way of looking at uh, hitter's value. But when you have to explain that, you know, Trout and Cabrera are, equal in a hitting statistic because of their base running, it starts to lose a little bit of its common sense. And so I think it made sense to move stolen bases and caught stealing over to the base running side. So 
um, just a little more transparent, and we say, okay, what was hitting base running, base running, and now there's not one part of base running in our hitting stat. Okay, so Woba was uh, initially trying to reflect a player's overall offensive contributions, which obviously includes his his batting numbers and his base running numbers, and now it just reflects what that player is as a hitter. Yes, so so Woba has kind of shifted from uh, being an offensive metric, a total offensive metric, and it never was because we didn't have first to third, home to to second, those kind of base running things, but it's now just an offensive hitting metric and what you do at the plate. And obviously, obviously, players that would be affected by this most are high stolen base guys. I imagine Ricky Henderson probably took a little bit of a dip in Woba. Um, and uh, obviously, Cabrera benefited from this as well. Someone like Cabrera, who doesn't run that well, but is just measuring his uh, performance at the plate, that uh, he would benefit from those changes in this new system. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is that, you know, we're basically treating it as an accounting system, right? So, like, with war, we have all the components broken out where this is batting, this is base running, this is fielding, this is positional adjustment, this is replacement level. Uh, You know, we're looking at all these different components um, and saying we want them to, you know, add up and make sense. From that perspective, they didn't change at all. I mean, all we did was move runs from one from one category to the other and kind of a category that makes more sense. So, you know, Henderson's Wobo went down a little bit, but his base running went up a lot. So uh, the net change is, is zero. I mean, for basically everyone across the board, uh, their overall value didn't change. Just the way we're uh, showing where that value came from changed slightly, but it's, it's mostly just an accounting change. Okay, so the changes to Woba should not affect their war calculations? Correct. Yeah. I mean, anyone who lost value uh, by having stolen bases removed from war saw the, the same value go into their base running. This was a move, not a, not a deletion. So, um, you know, Ricky Henderson's war didn't change when we made the, the switch on Wolba. It just is uh, accounted for differently in the, in the sub-metrics on the site. Now, these changes also affected runs created and runs created plus? Yes, because those are based on Woba. So now uh, WRC Plus, which is basically the park-adjusted version of Woba in a you know index metric where 100 is the average, uh, since that's based on Woba and Woba changed on stole, stolen bases and caught stealing, WRC Plus changed as well. So you can look at both of those as just hitting metrics, and then for the base running stuff, you just look at the base running side. Let's shift focus to war wins above replacement a little bit. Tell me about the major differences between the war found on fan graphs and the war found at baseball reference. Well, I think the major difference and probably the one that people uh, note the most often is on the pitching side. We kind of have a fundamental difference of opinion of how you're supposed to or how you should best go about measuring pitching. Um, So baseball reference starts with runs allowed for a pitcher and then works from there to make adjustments to try and subtract out the defensive contributions of his teammates and try and figure out you know, as best as they can, isolating uh, what the pitcher was responsible for, but their foundation point is runs allowed. For us, we feel like uh, the entanglement of pitching and defense is, is really complicated and probably the hardest thing that any uh, statistical analyst has to deal with on the pitching side of things. Um, and if we start with runs allowed, there's a lot of assumptions you have to make uh, that we're not comfortable with. So we start with SIP, which is basically walk, strikeouts, and home runs. Those are obviously things that the defenders have no real control over. And we can say with pretty decent certainty that these are uh, actions that the pitcher was primarily responsible for. So we're going to give them blame for their walks and home runs, and we'll give them credit for their strikeouts. And we leave out uh, all hits on balls in play, which is a, a kind of a controversial thing to do. Um, and not everyone agrees that this is the best way to evaluate pitching. So some people prefer uh, the baseball reference way of doing war versus ours. I think ours um, is more 
transparent in what it's measuring. I mean, you can look at a, a pitcher's war on fan graphs and know, you know, this guy's war is based on these things. When you look at it on baseball reference, because they have to make so many tweaks and adjustments to try and pull fielding out, uh, you might not realize that, for instance, like Justin Berlander uh, is getting a credit from the Detroit Tigers having a terrible defense, even though he posted a low batting average on balls and play personally because the Tigers' defense was terrible on days when he wasn't pitching. Or at least we think that based on one year of defensive metrics and uh, the batting average involves and play of his teammates like Rick Porcello and uh, Doug Fister and some of the other guys in the rotation, Max Scherzer, who had you know a pretty high value this year. Um, so there's basically a fundamental difference on, on how we evaluate pitchers. Uh, it's kind of a pick your poison, but I think one of the things that we've tried to do is um, you know kind of show that there's there's value in both and. Uh, in August, we rolled out a, a, what we call fielder-dependent pitching, which we see as kind of the complement to SIP, uh, which me- does measure uh, the value of wins on balls in play and, and runner stranding, which aren't included um, in FIP, obviously. And so you can kind of look and see, uh, here's the FIP runs, here's the FIP wins, here's the fielding-dependent wins, and you can kind of choose how much of that you want to give credit to the pitcher. So our goal is to kind of show people as many options as possible, make it as transparent as possible, and kind of let them pick what they feel is the best way to evaluate a pitcher. And I think that's great. And I know it bothers some people that there are multiple war calculations. Obviously, you and and baseball reference and baseball perspectives each have your own calculations. And I know that bothers people. But especially with pitchers, I think it's great to look at both. Well, especially with fan graphs and with baseball reference. Frankly, uh, BP's warp calculations with pitchers appears to be way off in many cases. Um, and there's a significant difference in value between how BP values pitchers and how Fangraphs and Baseball Reference does. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to use your starting point as a value indicator or calculator uh, to use runs allowed. I think that's perfectly valid. I also think it's perfectly valid to use FIP because I understand the problems with runs allowed. I like that there are two systems with pitching. I like seeing both numbers, and I think they're both perfe- perfectly valid. I don't necessarily prefer one more than the other one. When it comes to fan graphs or baseball reference with that given system, I'm like, that's great that there's both because they're the fundamental uh, part of both of them is so different. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when we were developing our version of pitcher war and, you know, I mean, we were developing pitcher war really, I mean, fan graphs was kind of the first site to host war uh, baseball reference added a, a little bit later. So we weren't necessarily looking at what they were doing and trying to do anything differently. Uh, David Appleman and I were talking with Tom Tango and just kind of coming up with, you know, what we thought was the best process and the best practice and the thing that we could, you know, defend as the most logical and the best way of doing it. And looking at pitcher war, we realized there weren't, there wasn't a perfect solution. If you went with a run cloud based thing, you had to make some sacrifices, you had to make some assumptions and there were going to be problems. If you went with sex, you had to make some assumptions and you had to make some sacrifices and there were going to be problems. And so uh, it was really, you pick your poison. And I think we could have gone either way. I'm a little more comfortable with the way we went, but I'm not going to sit here and say that the way we do it is perfect and the way baseball runs so it is terrible. Uh, I think there, there is value in looking at both ways. And I do like the fact that we were able to add uh, what we call RA9 wins. Um, so if you just want to see a pitcher's total value based on runs allowed, uh, you know, park adjusted, but not, you just want to assume that the defense had absolutely nothing to do with his results and all you care about is what actually happened, uh, you can find that on Fangraphs now. And uh, you can see the difference between his RA9 wins and his FIP wins and kind of figure out, okay, uh, if he was worth six wins total based on runs allowed, he was only based four wins uh, based on his FIP. There's two wins in there that are, some part defense, probably some part pitching. Uh, if you want to give them the full two wins, that's fine. If you want to cut it in half and give them one, that's fine. If you don't want to give them any, that's okay too. But we kind of break it out for you and say, 
you know, here's what we know he's responsible for, here's what we don't know he's responsible for, but he probably is responsible for some of it, and you can kind of choose how much of that you want to give him credit for. I wonder if with pitcher war, it's more complicated because of what replacement level players are with pitchers or how the player is replaced. If a starting pitcher who gets injured in, in early May, um, is, he's likely to get replaced by several different players. Um, whereas a shortstop who gets injured in May may get replaced by one. They may just have another shortstop on their team. The, the teams use multiple pitchers to often cover injuries, uh, injuries to starters. Does that factor at all into the calculations? Yeah, I think with starting pitchers, we don't actually see that as much. Uh, in general, a team will go into the season kind of with a designated six starters. This guy in, in AAA that they've stashed down there. They know someone's going to get hurt. He's kind of the first guy they're going to go to. Um, and, and if multiple guys get hurt, they'll scramble. They might make a trade or something. But for the most part, I think we see with starting pitchers, it's pretty similar to the position players. It's not true at all in the bullpen. The bullpen is a totally different animal. When Mariano Rivera blew out his knee, they didn't call up some guy from AAA and put him in the closer role. Uh, you know, they just bumped Rafael Soriano from the eighth inning to the ninth inning, and they promoted everybody one slot. Uh, and that's what we kind of refer to as bullpen chaining, uh, where everyone is kind of a link in the chain, and when the top chain goes out, the chain just moves, and the replacement level guy goes in the lowest leverage inning. That is accounted for in war, uh, both on our side and on baseball references. I think any good war calculation is going to take, it, take it, that into context and say, we know that they're not going to call up some scrub from AAA and put him in the ninth inning of one-run games, so we can't give you know the closer the full credit for his, uh, his leverage index, or, or kind of the the situations that he's placed into because, you know, while he certainly has earned those based on his performance, uh, you know, those are still going to be available to the team. Those don't go away when the guy gets hurt. It's not like Mariano Rivera took the ninth inning situations away with him when he blew out his knee. So um, we do account for the, the leverage and the chaining in, in the bullpen. But I think with starters and position players, we don't see that quite as much. With position players, how does uh, F4 account for defensive shifts? Yeah, so uh, we use ultimate zone rating, which is a, a defensive metric created by Mitchell Wickman, and he decided uh, a couple of years ago when shifting became a little more popular that there was no real extra value in measuring uh, plays where the shift was on. So anytime a shift is marked as having occurred, that play is discarded and not counted whatsoever. So if Brett Laurie is lined up in right field and he fields the ball, uh, that play just doesn't count, essentially, for ultimate moon rating. It's not a perfect solution, but it, it does at least avoid the problem of, you know, giving a guy way too much credit for being stand, put out of position by his coach and making a play where the system might otherwise think that it was the greatest defensive play in the history of the world. Uh, and we think this is probably the best way of handling a defensive run save, which is the defensive metric that baseball reference uses. They started out this season not doing that. They were accounting for the shift. Uh, and giving full credit to players on shifted plays because, after all, they were turning a ball and playing it out. And it was creating some pretty weird results. Brett Laurie, I think, after two months of the season, was 25 runs above average uh, because of where the Blue Jays were putting him. And uh, they eventually made the decision to, to throw out shifted plays as well. So I think both major defensive systems at this point have agreed that um, the shift is, is a problem and those plays should be ignored. It's interesting, though, because the shift is becoming more and more popular. So as they're being thrown out now, that makes sense because the majority of plays aren't shifted, obviously. But uh, as defense changes and as the metrics change and, uh, and as uh, field effects becomes more popular, I think the shifts are going to become more and more popular. They're going to become individualized for each batter. Uh, I wonder if this is going to create a problem in the long term. So I, I think one of the things we're, we're basically looking at is right now, ultimate zone rating defensive run save. These were primarily created to measure the individual contributions of a defender. But there's uh, you know team contributions of the defense that you care about as well. 
where if you were to think about it and say, okay, you know, Brett Lorty doesn't deserve credit for standing in right field and making a play, but the Toronto Blue Jays deserve credit for making that play. It's almost like you need a coach's UVR or a manager's DRS or some, some extra factor that, you know, none of the players get credit for it, but we're at least saying, hey, look, the team as a whole gets credit for the shift. You know, Tampa Bay obviously is very good at this. Um, you know, we want to account for at the team level the fact that they saved these runs, that they lowered their pitchers' batting average on balls in play through this defensive shift, even if we're not giving credit to that specific player. And I, I think that's uh, likely to, to be the evolution of the defensive system where they'll say, we're not going to give Brett Lurie the credit, but we are going to give the Blue Jays as a whole the credit. We're going to account for this in a separate line item. Let's talk about defensive metrics in general. Uh, how accurate and reliable do you think they are for active players? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the value of defensive metrics has obviously been an open question over the last few years. I think the comparison that I have generally made, and I think it still rings true, is that metrics like UVR uh, or DRS are kind of like ERA for, for fielders. So however comfortable you are using ERA to evaluate pitchers, I think that's about how comfortable you should be um, using, you know, something like UVR or DRS for fielders in that, you know, both take multiple years to stabilize. You want large sample sizes, there's park effects, there's, um, you know, issues with defensive uh, uh, with teammates' performance. Uh, so, you know, obviously what we understand with pitchers is that their ERA can fluctuate based on, you know, how, how good their outfielders are, what kind of park they play in, what kind of league they play in, the level of competition, the weather, and there's all these variables. But uh, over the, uh, the long term, we still think ERA is like an okay measure of pitching performance. When you guys have a 10 or 15-year career, it's pretty likely that those things are going to even evened out. And usually, even over two or three years, it's unlikely that you're going to see a, a bad pitcher post a good ERA or a good pitcher post a bad ERA. It happens, but it's pretty unusual. I think that's kind of the same with, with fielding. It's, you know, Occasionally, you'll see Carlos Lee put up on a plus 11 UVR and everyone will freak out and say, the system's terribly broken. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Ryan Vogelfong can post a 2.25 ERA and nobody freaks out and thinks the system's broken. So I think you know, we just have to be aware that there are outliers. Uh, you want a bigger defensive you know, sample size with defensive metrics than you do with offensive metrics. Um, and I think you want to understand that there's a margin of error, but I don't think you should just throw them out either and say, this produces results uh, that I don't agree with, therefore I think this metric is useless. What about with retired players, especially players who played in the late 1800s and the early 1900s? How are we accurately representing their defensive value? Uh, I think we're probably guessing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I think the, the, it's an honest answer. The, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think there's any question that, you know, the data from way back then is um, not not nearly as good as it is now. It's obviously not ball-and-play data. Um, you know, the they counts are pretty sketchy, pieced together from box scores. Um, you know, I think in general, I would look at, at defensive metrics from the early 20th century and especially from the 19th century and say, you know, that's an interesting guess. Don't take it too seriously. Uh, I don't think anyone's really basing too many arguments on someone's Hall of Fame credentials from the 1912 based on his defensive war. Well, it's interesting, though, because the Veterans Committee just announced their ballot of players that they've put on there, and I believe Bill Donlin and Jack Glasscock are two of the players who are on it. And those guys have very high wins above replacements on both sites, but a lot of their value comes from defense. And it's where I look at that and say, wait a second here. We can't put a guy in the Hall of Fame if he falls well short offensively, and defensively, his value is coming from a time where we don't, we don't even there, – there were no games on film. How do we know that Jack Glasscock was a good defender? He might have been, but I think it's a big leap to put him in the Hall of Fame for that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to these kind of arguments, I would say common sense should rule. And so, you know, if we're, I wouldn't make any kind of argument for a guy like Jack Glasscock based on war. I think if we had accounts from the time where everybody was in universal agreement that the guy was one of the best defenders they'd ever seen, um, you know, like Bill Mazeroski, everybody agrees was a fantastic defensive player, even though we don't have good defensive metrics on him, uh, or at least as good as we have now anyway. Uh, I think, you know, most people agree that Bill Mazeroski was a really good defender. Uh, even Avi Smith, who, you you know, played in the 80s before we had ball and play metrics. Um, you know, we had some decent idea of, of what Ozzy Smith was for a statistical purpose, but I, I give more credence to the fact that Ozzy Smith won, you know, whatever it was, 432 gold gloves or something, uh, and was considered the best defensive shortstop of all time. Uh, I think those are the kind of things where, you know, if we have a player like that, uh, I'm happy to give him a ton of defensive credit in terms of, uh, of his war, but I, I'm not necessarily going to go with just what the numbers say. Uh, I'll just kind of you know, we, I think we have an understanding of what a good defensive player is, you know, in terms of 15, 20 runs above average per season. Um, so with Ozzie Smith, you know, if someone said, hey, I want to give him 15 runs of credit uh, for 20 years, I, okay, that's 30 wins. You know, good for him. I, I'm happy to give him that. I'm probably not willing to give that to anybody else, though. Most of the defensive numbers that we see come from UCR and DRS. What are front offices using? Are they using those numbers? I, they don't really look at them. I think one of the, the uh, myths about field effects right now is that it's totally changed the way that teams look at uh, defensive evaluations, and they've thrown out all these useless uh, publicly available metrics. Uh, field effects, I think, is uh, very much in its infantile stage. It's not really available on a wide-scale basis. The, the system is not installed in um, you know, even a majority of major league parks at this time. Uh, teams don't really have access to a lot of data. So they don't really have this comprehensive overview GPS tracking where they know that this guy ran this number of feet in this number of seconds and, uh, you know, they have the exact starting position. I mean, teams don't have that data right now. They have some of it for some players in some stadiums for some periods of time, but uh, there's no big record of database of fielding uh, efficiency that teams are leaning on. So I think, you know, they might not be using just specifically UVR and DRS, but they're using similar type systems that they created proprietarily. Dave, I want to shift over to uh, PEDs a little bit. We do a little talk about uh, performance-enhancing drugs on this podcast. What do we know about performance-enhancing drugs with baseball players? How much do they actually increase performance? Yeah, I don't think we know anything. <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of those things that uh, everyone, it's kind of like defensive metrics. We're guessing. Like, we, we think that they help a little bit. We think that they help you come back from injury. Uh, there's obviously a lot of studies on uh, what performance in the Amazon drugs can do to you physically. But in terms of hitting a baseball or throwing a curve, we, we don't really know. So, um, you know, I think we know that players are taking them, and we know that offense surged when players were taking more of them or they were more available than they have been at previous time in history. So we're pretty sure that they help with offense, but at the same time, a lot of pitchers were taking them as well. So uh, I think in general, we're, we're left to make broad strokes and broad assumptions. And uh, when it comes to specifics, like with Barry Bonds and how many home runs he would have hit had he not taken steroids, we really have no idea. That's right. And Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens in particular, those are the two players. They're unlike uh, Sosa and Palmero and McGuire, I guess, because those two players we know would have been Hall of Famers had they never used, at least when we think they started using. And again, we don't even know that either. Um, but we're two months away at this point from Bonds and Clemens not being elected to the Hall of Fame. Do you agree with that decision? Do you think that these guys associated with steroids should make it in? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that 
to me, the Hall of Fame is a history of baseball. And it's something that, you know, I would hope that when I have kids someday and they grow up and if they're interested in baseball, I want to be able to take them to Cooperstown and walk them around and teach them about Babe Ruth and teach them about Ty Cobb and, you know, Jackie Robinson and Ted Williams. And I'm not going to just pretend that baseball didn't exist for 20 years and that the great players of their time, uh, didn't happen. You know, I'm not going to just tell my kids, you know, baseball stopped in 1993 and resumed again in 2008. Like, I just, I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that that 15-year history of baseball didn't happen. And so for me, I think, you know, if we're going to have a museum that is the history of baseball, we need to acknowledge that this is part of the history of baseball. Just like, you know, keeping uh, African-American players out of the sport was the history of baseball for a really long time. And, you know, we have uh, players who played against exclusively white players because of segregation. I mean, that's not a thing we should be proud of but it's baseball and you know, we shouldn't be proud of the performance enhancing drug era, but it happened. And I think we need to acknowledge it and say that compared to everyone else who played at the time, Barry Bonds was still so much above them. And Roger Clemens was still so much better than the rest of the pitchers who pitched in this time. They deserve a plaque in Cooperstown and they deserve to have future baseball fans know about what they did. I agree with that a hundred percent. And it's one of those things where to me, performance enhancing drugs and steroid use is part of Barry Bonds's legacy, but it's not all of his legacy. I'd rather have the hall of fame acknowledge both acknowledge that he was a great player, acknowledge his involvement with steroids and move on. I think fans want to move on. The game certainly wants to move on, but it's becoming impossible for anyone to move on at this point when you have the best players of a generation being up for hall of fame and they're not getting in. It's making, it's making moving on and just sort of being like, okay, this happened. Let's acknowledge that it happened. Let's acknowledge that it was a problem league-wide, that there was no testing, that players used that was still illegal, they were using illegal drugs, and let's let's move on. Let's also acknowledge their accomplishments as players. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that we have to be aware of is that, you know, there's a uh, legitimacy risk that Cooperstown and the Hall of Fame put themselves at if they just take a stance that goes against what uh, most people want in a, in a baseball museum. I mean, I think when we look back at like the 1996 AFMVP award, Juan Gonzalez won the award, but pretty much anyone who was alive at that time uh, and remembers how good Alex Rodriguez was knows that that, just, that award was a farce. And mm-hmm. uh, what they think is that the um, value of the MVP is lessened by Juan Gonzalez winning that award, not that they remember how good Juan Gonzalez was. And I think if we have a Hall of Fame that is essentially, you know, uh, 20 or 30 uh, Juan Gonzalez over Alex Rodriguez uh, votes where you have guys, you know, like uh, Jim Rice or Jack Morris in the Hall of Fame and we don't have Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, people are just going to take Cooperstown less seriously, and I don't think that's good for the sport at all. I agree. And I was talking to someone uh, the other day who said, how is this different from Pete Rose and Joe Jackson? And I said, look, Pete Rose and Joe Jackson played 50 years apart. I think what they did is worse, first of all, but that's my opinion. But they played 50 years apart and they're not um, by omitting Rose, you're not ignoring a generation of players. By omitting Jackson, you're not omitting a generation of players. There's 15 to 20 guys that had Hall of Fame careers, some automatic like Bonds and Clemens and some more borderline like Kevin Brown, I guess who are not going to get in. And when you ignore that many players, that's when the legitimacy and credibility issue comes into play as well. Right. And I do think eventually these guys are going to get in. They're not going to get in any time soon, but I do think the BBWAA is changing. I mean, you know, I got a, I got in last year, so in nine years I'll have a Hall of Fame vote. And uh, I think there's a, a decent amount of younger guys, even not, you know, necessarily sabermetric guys, but, you know, younger beat writers who came up reading Bill James and Rob Nyer who think this way, who read fan graphs, who, uh, 
you know, look at baseball reference every day. Uh, I think that there's a, there's a wave of younger writers coming in and, you know, five, 10 years down the line, uh, we'll have enough folks to get these guys in the whole thing. I want to uh, shift over to uh, something different, baseball myths. Uh, what are some of the most common falsehoods in the baseball, baseball world? During the World Series, you kept hearing about protection constantly. Prince Fielder is the best protector in baseball. Look what he did this year to Miguel Cabrera, and look what he did the previous four years with Ryan Braun. Is protection real? Yeah, it's not at all. I think uh, I actually wrote a column for ESPN back in August pointing out that Ryan Braun got better after Prince Fielder left, which if you're going to look at the protection theory, uh, you know, I think what people actually thought was going to happen is once Prince Fielder left and Ryan Braun had, you know, a mediocre hitter hitting behind him, uh, he was going to get walked 150 times a year. Uh, Ryan Braun's walk rate went down. <laughs> I think like, the idea of what protection was supposed to happen as Braun was supposed to get walked a lot and not hit as well is the exact opposite. He walked less and hit better. So, um, you know, and Miguel Cabrera uh, had, a, had a really good year, but he hit better two years ago than he did this year. Uh, this wasn't a historic offensive season. Cabrera didn't take it to another level. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that there's any evidence that um, – protection actually increases the the overall output of a player. It might change it a little bit, but uh, I think what we see is, you know, uh, in general, pitchers are pretty smart. And this is where the protection theory breaks down for me is the logical underpinning of what we're actually saying. So if we think that a pitcher is going to be scared because Prince Fielder is on deck, and they're going to pitch Miguel Cabrera in such a way that's going to make it more likely that Miguel Cabrera is going to get a hit, that makes it worse for the pitcher because now they're going to be facing Prince Fielder with a man on base instead of the base is empty. And so I think in every situation, the pitcher is going to say, how do I get this guy out? Especially if there's a good hitter coming up because I don't want that guy hitting a two-run homer. So if I've got a, you know, a big-time power hitter coming up, I'm going to concentrate more and make sure that I get this guy out so I'm not pitching from the stretch and I'm not pitching at a disadvantage with a first baseman holding a runner on uh, so there's a big hole on the right side. Um, I just don't think the pitchers are going to choose to pitch in a way that makes it more likely that the hitter is going to get on base because, you know, that's a pretty bad idea. Let's shift to the, I guess, myth of the closer. Do you think it's fair to say that pitching in the ninth inning is more difficult than pitching in any other inning? I do, actually. I, I don't think this is necessarily a psychological thing, but I think that there's absolutely something to uh, the fact that you cannot mix and match in the ninth inning. If you're going to go with a typical modern-day bullpen and, uh, and you're going to go in the ninth inning and, and say, this is my ninth inning guy, as we saw in the playoffs, I think the Tigers are a perfect example of this. Jose Valverde is pretty good against right-handers and terrible against left-handers. He goes up against the Yankees, which has you know, basically six or seven power-hitting left-handers in a row, uh, in the middle of their order, you throw Jose Valverde in there in the ninth inning, he's going to get destroyed, and he did. But you bring in Phil Coke, who's amazing against left-handers and can't get right-handers out to save his life. Phil Coke's going to look really terrific against that left-handed lineup, which is exactly what happened. Uh, and then you go against the Giants, it's, it's a little different because the Giants have Buster Posey and Hunter Pence, and they're a little more right-handed. So um, I think what we see is if you're going to have a capital C closer who's going to pitch the ninth inning against uh, whoever is coming to the plate, they need to be able to get hitters from both sides out. They need to have some kind of out pitch that works against right-handers and left-handers. That's usually a split-finger fastball, a change-up, uh, a 12-6 curve, or a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Those are generally the pitches that work against everybody. If you're a, if you're a sinker-slider pitcher, you're probably going to have a pretty big platoon split. If you have a low-arm spot, uh, you know, you're probably going to have a pretty big platoon split. You don't really want those kinds of guys in a closer situation, they work a lot better in the seventh or eighth inning situation when you can decide, hey, look, here come four left-handers. I'm going to go get my low-arm low slider lefty. He's going to get all those guys out, and then I'm going to go with my right-hander, and I'm going to mix and match. Can't do that in the ninth inning if you have a capital C closer. So uh, I think 
it's it's a myth from the the mentality aspect of it, but I think it's a real thing that if you're going to pick a closer, uh, you can't just take any good setup guy and move him to the fifth inning. Seeing how Tim Lincecum was used this year in the playoffs, coming out of the bullpen, pitching two innings, pitching an inning and two thirds, do you think that uh, the success that Lincecum had coming out of the bullpen will change how some teams use uh, bullpen pitchers? I don't, mostly because I think that there's uh, financial incentives for pitchers to not be used in that way, and we, it would require a, a systemic overhaul of the um, statistics that are used to evaluate pitchers. So if you're going to make money in a pitcher in Major League Baseball, you either need to get a lot of wins and a lot of innings, or you need to get a lot of saves. And those are really your only path to riches. Um, so for pitchers, they either want to be a starter or a closer. And middle release is the land where no one makes any money. We just saw Joel Peralta resign with the Rays for two years and $6 million. Joel Peralta is a pretty good relief pitcher. Strikes out you know, 10, 11 guys for nine innings, doesn't walk anybody. Uh, you know, A really effective seventh-eighth inning guy getting $3 million a year. If he was a closer, I, in the Fangrass piece about his signing, I compared him to Houston Street. They have very similar uh, skill sets. Both are fly ball guys who give up some home runs. Um, Houston Street makes eight, nine, ten million a year. He had a couple of years ago, he signed a three-year contract. Uh, I think what we see is that you know a pitcher like Lincecum just isn't going to agree to be used in the sixth, seventh, eighth inning. Going to be used across multiple innings where he can't pick up wins or saves because it's going to reduce his paycheck. And until Major League Baseball figures out some way to uh, pay middle leagues more and up their compensation, uh, quality pitchers just aren't going to want to be used in that way. Well, that's interesting because that makes me wonder too. What numbers when uh, players who are going to arbitration and go to arbitration cases? What numbers are? are being presented to the arbitrator, if any. Does it work like that? Can you present, do they present wins above replacement? Do they present uh, weighted on base? Or is it just average home runs and RBIs, wins, losses, and saves? It's mostly uh, traditional numbers. Uh, the arbiters are generally not huge baseball nerds. They're not going for Bill James and Ron Meyer and these kind of guys. You're going for basically judges uh, who have some modicum of baseball knowledge, but they're not baseball experts. And they're really judging the quality of the arguments more than they are the quality of the player. Uh, so, you know, teams can certainly use some of these uh, advanced numbers, but they have to be able to explain them very easily and they have to make them, uh, you know, sound legitimate. And so there are teams that are using uh, defensive numbers. There are teams that are going to use some more advanced stuff. Uh, leverage index has made its way into arbitration cases as a, a way to show, you know, a certain pitcher wasn't pitching in high leverage endings. Uh, therefore, the manager didn't seem to treat him as one of their better relievers. So you can't just judge him based on VRA uh, or his total innings, and that's worked. And, you know, you can explain a concept like leverage index uh, pretty quickly. Something like war, you know, it's going to be a lot harder. And so, you know, it's pretty complex. It's a, it's a formula that has a lot of moving parts. Uh, obviously, it's calculated differently on different sites. A team probably has their own calculation. That's not something you really want to spend your, your arbitration case doing. Um, so in usual, uh, the arbiters can look at, you know, the traditional metrics, but especially playing time. It's mostly based on service time and playing time. And the argument is, that if the manager didn't think this guy was any good, he wouldn't have given him 650 plate appearances. So, uh, you know, kind of by proxy, if you played that guy every day, he's going to get everyday player money, even if he's not very good, because you're the one who chose to play him. Mm, that's, uh, that, that brings up all kinds of flaws right there, don't you think? Having yeah. baseball people make baseball decisions about salary that don't really um, know too much about the game. And, I, I mean, that's just the gross generalizing that can happen in there, I imagine, about playing time. Well, sometimes a guy plays because there's no one else, uh, no one else available. I think that could be one way how you can increase salaries, not just for middle relievers, but perhaps for other positions that may be undervalued if you had uh, people, uh, the arbitrators, were more knowledgeable about some of the advanced numbers that are out there.
I agree, but I think that there's a, it's an interesting, for the arbitration system itself, it's just kind of interesting in that, you know, at, at times it can actually uh, price a player above what he would get in the free agent market. We thought this last year with Joe Saunders, where uh, the, the Diamondbacks actually non-tendered him because they were afraid he was going to get more in arbitration than he was in free agency uh, because, you know, they were going to look at the innings and they were going to look at the wins and they were going to look at the things that, you know, teams kind of moved away from in evaluating pitchers. Uh, so the team had the option to not go to arbitration. And so, um, you know, I think if arbitration was made, and teams didn't have the ability to just uh, non-tender a player, this would be a larger problem. But I think we can kind of see arbitration as a, as a step ladder to get players to market value. If they get to market value a little faster than they should, the team can just make them you know, earn their market value by putting them into the marketplace. So uh, the fact that teams aren't beholden to this uh, you know, um, slightly arcane system uh, means that it still does a pretty decent job of holding down salaries when it needs to, and it doesn't inflate them to a point that's a, a really serious problem because teams can always just opt out of the arbitration process if they think a player's overvalued. Where are advanced metrics headed? What's the next wave? Well, I think, you know, things like field effects and hit effects always get mentioned in this, in this uh, context for when this question comes up. And I don't think there's any question that if we had access to those kinds of metrics, it would uh, cause a bit of a sea change in, in what we looked at and the kinds of numbers we looked at. But I just honestly don't think we're ever going to get them, or not anytime soon. I know people keep talking about, oh man, when we have field effects data, when we have you know speed off bat data for uh, judging you know uh, a hitter's uh, bat speed, this is going to be so much better. But there's really no incentive for this data to ever become publicly available at any kind of reasonable cost. I mean, the company that's uh, doing the FX stuff is uh, called Sport Vision. It's a really expensive outlay for them to go install these cameras. Uh, and outfit the stadiums with this data. The only way for them to make a profit on this is to sell this data to teams. And if they stop selling this data to teams or if they give it to someone like Fangraphs and we publish it for free, uh, we've just killed their market. We've killed their ability to have a business. And so uh, I'm, I'm uh, pessimistic about the public release of field effects and hit effects at any point in the near future, um, especially because field effects don't even exist on a wide scale yet. So I think in general we're going to try and tweak and and improve and, um, you know, work on things like catcher defense that we know we have a long way to go. Um, you know, I think there's areas that we, we know we need to improve along a lot, um, but I don't think that the hit effects, field effects, uh, dramatic changes are coming to the statistical analysis community anytime soon. All right, that was my conversation with Dave Cameron from Fangraphs. Hope you enjoyed listening. I certainly enjoyed speaking with Dave. You can, of course, check out Dave on Fangraphs. I read Fangraphs just about every day. I know that many of you do as well. You can give Dave a follow on Twitter at DCameronFG, DCameronFG. And if you're a Mariners chronic, you can, of course, check out his blog, USSMariner.com. I want to thank a few more people before I wrap things up entirely. Thanks to my friend Zach Milliken. Zach is a graphics designer who really helped me get my websites up and going from the beginning. He continues to help with some of the day-to-day maintenance and overall look and feel of the sites. So if you're interested in graphics design or in web design, you're looking for someone to follow on Twitter, you can give Zach a follow at ZachDM, Z-A-C-K-D-M, or check out his websites, PaintedX.com and DesignTypes.tv. also want to thank two bands for letting me use their music. Thanks to Baker for letting me use their song Reputation in the opening theme. And thanks to Scamper for letting me use their song Barcelona, which is playing right now. You can find out more information on both of those bands on MySpace Music. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. I'll have a new episode up soon.